Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Kathy with a K. And I'm Kathy with a C. And this is season two of Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Chicago, Illinois. Those who know the city are aware that locals only refer to Chicago as having a north, west, and south side. The south side has 77 official communities, one of which is South Deering. The community was originally settled in the 1870s by workers from England, Wales, and Ireland who were attracted to the industrial jobs in nearby factories. As more industries were set up along the Calumet River, immigrants from Eastern and Southern Europe arrived. Beginning in the early 20th century, the South Deering population consisted primarily of hardworking tradesmen, craftsmen, and blue-collar workers. It was also where young women came to attend nursing school at the South Chicago Community Hospital. Nursing was one of the primary professions for women at the time. The hospital opened in 1917, and with the assistance of Superintendent Clara Dorothy Schaefer, it became a successful school of nursing after the Spanish flu pandemic. In the early morning of July 14, 1966, residents awoke to the screams of a young nurse who lived with several other nurses and nursing students in a South Deering townhouse. She was perched on the second-story ledge, crying out for help. Within hours, the eyes of the world shifted focus to the horror of what some would call the crime of the century. Judy Dykton was a student nurse at Cook County Hospital and woke up early on the morning of July 14, 1966, to squeeze in some extra study time for a neurology exam. Judy lived at 2315 East 100th Street in one of three townhouses on the street reserved for nursing students from the South Chicago Community Hospital School of Nursing. As Judy was studying, she turned off her room fan and thought she heard something that sounded like an animal cry. After hearing the sound a second time, Judy opened her window blinds and saw a woman perched on the second-story ledge, 12 feet above the lawn of the townhouse two doors down at 2319. After opening her window, Judy heard the cries more clearly. The woman was yelling out, Oh my God, they're all dead. All my friends are dead. Judy ran to the townhouse and quickly realized she knew the screaming woman. She was 23-year-old Corazon Emurao, who went by Cora. She was a transfer nurse from the Philippines who had just moved to Chicago about three months prior. Judy entered Cora's townhouse and immediately saw a dead body on the living room couch. She ran back out and got the house mother of the student nurses. 
the two women ran back to help Cora, who by this time had jumped off the ledge and onto the ground. Cora was urging them not to go back inside because she thought a killer might still be there. According to a Chicago Tribune article, Robert Hall, a neighbor who lived in an adjacent building, also heard Cora's cries when he was walking his dog. He flagged down patrolman Officer Daniel Kelly, who had only been on the job about 18 months. Officer Kelly entered Cora's townhouse, and the first body he saw was on the couch. A student nurse he immediately recognized as Gloria Davy. He then went upstairs to the second floor and saw seven additional bodies. Joe Cummings, a crime reporter for WCFL Radio, heard on his police scanner, Help! 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 Oh my God, I dated her sister. Oh my God, I've never seen anything like this. Give me the sergeant. Give me my lieutenant. Oh my God. It was Officer Kelly, in hysterics, calling police dispatch. When Officer Kelly gave the address, reporter Cummings drove to the scene. Cat Officer Kelly actually knew Gloria Davy because he had dated her sister. Could you imagine the horror? No, I can't even imagine. When Cummings arrived, Officer Kelly was panicked and his uniform was disheveled. Officer Kelly's hat was actually on backwards. And apparently he was pacing back and forth and was just absolutely distraught. Right. Cummings entered the townhouse and saw Gloria's body. He went back outside and told Kelly he was surprised that he was so affected by seeing a dead body. He was a police officer. And Officer Kelly said, go upstairs. Cummings did go upstairs. Once he was there, he found three bodies in a bedroom. And then in another bedroom, there were three more bodies. And then just outside the bathroom was a seventh body on the floor. Kath, I read that when this reporter was walking down the hallway, there was so much blood that it was squishing up out of the carpet around the soles of his shoes. Oh, that's like a horror movie. I know. But like this reporter's walking through a crime scene. Crazy. I had that same exact thought. Yeah. So with these seven bodies who Cummings saw, plus Gloria Davy, who was on the couch, there were eight victims in total. And then Cummings, who was critical of Officer Kelly's reaction, walked outside of the townhouse and began vomiting. Then Cummings heard a woman screaming and crying. And when he looked over at Officer Kelly, Kelly looked up and said, that's the survivor. July 13th, 1966 started out as a regular day on the south side of Chicago. Cora was living in a townhouse with seven other nurses, five of whom were seniors at the South Chicago Community Hospital School of Nursing. Cora's roommates were Gloria Davy, age 22, Pamela Wilkening, age 20, Nina Schmale, age 24, Patricia Matuzik, age 20, and Suzanne Ferris, age 21. There were also two other exchange nurses from the Philippines, Merlita Gargulo, age 23, and Valentina Pasion, who was also 23. The nurses who worked that day had gotten off a long shift at the hospital and arrived home about 4 p.m. Cora, Merlita, and Valentina cooked together and ate around 4.30, took a nap, and then woke up around 6. The other five roommates were in and out of the townhouse. Suzanne and Marianne Jordan, who was a fellow nursing student but did not live with her classmates, left to hang out with a friend, while Gloria went on a date with her fiancé, Robert. Around 10.30 p.m. on July 13th, Cora locked the townhouse door, and she and the five roommates who were at home prepared for bed. Cora and Merlita shared a room, and Merlita was already lying down on the bottom bunk when Cora came to bed. 
Later that night, at around 11 o'clock, Cora was awakened by a gentle knock on her bedroom door. As she opened the door, Cora was confronted by a man holding a gun. Cora and her roommate Merlita fled to the other bedroom where Valentina, Pamela, Nina, and Patricia were sleeping. Cora said the man was soft-spoken and polite and told her he was not there to harm anyone. The six nurses were then ordered to sit on the floor. When one of the roommates asked what he wanted, the man said he was only there to rob them and that he needed money to go to New Orleans. He said he had no intention of hurting them and was smiling and smoking a cigarette. The women gave him all their money, which amounted to $23. The man made them sit on the bedroom floor and he began cutting up strips of the bedsheets. His gun was nearby at all times, but it was at this point that Cora noticed he also had a knife. The man tied the women's wrists and ankles one by one, beginning with Pamela Wilkening. He pointed his gun at anyone who moved. Around midnight, the seventh roommate, Gloria Davy, returned home from a date with her fiancé, not knowing that it would be their last one. Gloria went upstairs, where the man quickly subdued her when she walked into the bedroom. He took her money, then tied her hands and ankles. Then the man untied Pamela Wilkening's ankles, and she was taken out of the bedroom. Shortly after Pamela was taken out, two more women came home. The eighth roommate, Suzanne Ferris, and her friend, Marianne Jordan, who we mentioned was not a resident of the townhouse, returned to find a terrifying scene. The two ran into the back bedroom where the six other women were still tied up. The man followed them into the room and yelled, you two come here. He took Suzanne and Marianne out of the bedroom and shut the door. After about 20 minutes, Cora heard water running in the bathroom, and then the man came back into the bedroom. One by one, each of the women were led out of the room and never returned. At some point, Cora scooted under a bed and hid. The last two in the bedroom were Gloria and Cora, who was now concealed. The man came into the room, raped Gloria on the bed, and then took her out of the room. About an hour later, the man returned and went through the women's purses again, looking for more money. Cora held her breath as the man searched around the room. She was expecting to be discovered, but she never was. Cora stayed hidden for about two hours until an alarm clock went off at 5.30 a.m. because she believed the man was still in the townhouse. She then managed to wiggle out from under the bed and untied herself. She crept into the hallway where she saw one body on the bathroom floor, three in one bedroom and three in another. She did not see Gloria Davy, who was on the couch downstairs. Cora then crawled out onto the second story ledge and began crying for help. This was when nursing student Judy Dykton showed up. At 6.30 a.m. on July 14th, the first detective arrived. Jack Walenda was a seasoned detective who responded to the call. Even with his experience, he was completely shocked by the scale and barbarity of the crime scene. Walenda began to make his way through the townhouse, viewing the bodies one by one. The first body he saw was that of Gloria Davy, who was naked and laying across the couch. Gloria was tied with a strip of bedsheet, and Walenda noticed a specific style of double knotting. She was believed to be the only one of the eight victims who was raped. Detective Walenda continued up the stairs and into one of the bedrooms. He found Pamela Wilkening, who was gagged with stab wounds to the heart. 
near Pamela was Suzanne Ferris, who was lying face down with a white nurse's stocking tied tightly around her neck. Laying in a pool of blood, Suzanne had eight stab wounds to her neck and chest. In the same bedroom was Marianne Jordan, who had three stab wounds to her chest, one in her neck and one in her eye. Detective Walenda then made his way to another bedroom, and in it was Nina Schmale, who was found with her nightgown hoisted over her breasts, a strip of bedsheet tied tightly around her neck, with the same specific double knotting technique found on the ligature on Gloria's body. In the same bedroom, under a blue bedsheet, was Valentina Passione, who was face down with her throat cut. Thrown over Passione's body was the body of Merlita Gargulo, who was face up and had been stabbed and strangled. Detective Walenda continued down the hall and through the door to his right found the body of Patricia Matusik lying on the bathroom floor with her legs in the hallway. She was on her back with her hands tied behind her and strangled with a bedsheet. Her nightgown was rolled up and her underwear pulled down. It appeared that she had been kicked in the stomach. One by one, the Cook County coroner, Andrew Toman, released the bodies and the crime lab technicians got to work. They were able to lift numerous fingerprints from inside the townhouse and subsequently asked the FBI to help identify to whom they belonged. Because of how brutal the murders were and how many victims were killed, officers and detectives initially thought there had to be more than one suspect. However, because Cora survived, she was able to tell them that there was only one murderer. He was a white man about six feet tall with blonde hair around 25 years old, weighing about 160 pounds and had a voice with a southern drawl. He also had a tattoo on his left forearm that said, born to raise hell. Based on Cora's description, police began creating a composite sketch that ran in the newspaper one day after the murders. And Kath, this sketch actually evolved over the next day or so because the first one that was in the newspapers was actually a very generic looking kind of person. It had a certain face shape, no features on the face at all. It looked like an egg with eyes, honest to God. And did it have dark hair or did it have a hat on? I think dark hair. But the man she had described was blonde. Yeah. So I think it was more just an everyman. Yeah. Honest to God, it was so vague and the face was purposefully left light, almost so people could fill in their imagination. Exactly. Anybody could have fit into that. But by the next day, there was a more specific sketch. Correct. That looked nothing like the first one. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Officers immediately began canvassing the neighborhood. Acting Lieutenant Victor Verdoliak, Detective Sergeant Mike Clancy, and Detectives Edward Vilzinski, John Mitchell, Edwin Boyle, and Eugene Ivano went to businesses near the townhouse. Wilzinski spoke to an attendant at a nearby gas station that, Kath, I figured you would like this description. Uh-huh. It was known for being a hangout spot for shady characters. I love it. I know, because you could be a PI in the 40s. Yeah, a newspaper. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) One of the things I also noticed in the newspapers, they spelled clues, C-L-E-W-S at the time. And these detectives and sergeants that I just mentioned, Mm -hmm. their names were spelled differently depending on the papers. Oh, totally. (laughs) Some of the papers looked like it was done phonetically, Mm -hmm. as opposed to some of the court records that showed it spelled how they really were. The gas station attendant remembered his manager telling him about a man who left his bags at the gas station two days prior and had been complaining about missing a ship and losing out on a job. Detectives had the gas station attendant call the manager to come back to work. 
The gas station manager told detectives he spoke with a tall Southern man who missed his ship. So the manager told the man he could leave his bags at the gas station until he was able to find a place to stay. The manager then recommended a local rooming house at 94th Street and Commercial, which Kath, I looked it up on a map, and it was about a mile and a half northeast of the townhouse. Also because the detectives were told that this man might have missed a ship, another team of detectives went to the local National Maritime Union Hall, which was also within walking distance of the townhouse. Now, Kath, I had to look it up because I'd never heard of the National Maritime Union, but apparently it was a labor union that found jobs for ship workers like deckhands and cooks. The union hall agent who the detective spoke with said that he didn't recall any man who met the description that the gas station manager had given to them. Uh Now, Detective Wolzinski told this agent that the reason they were talking to him is that Detective Walenda, who was at the crime scene, had talked about seeing some knots that looked like they were specific kinds of knots that could have been learned from working on a ship. And the more Detective Wolzinski talked to this agent, it must have triggered something in him because the agent suddenly said, oh, I do remember a guy who was mad about losing out on a job because it had been double booked. So the agent started searching for the assignment sheet that would have held this job and commented to Detective Wolzinski that the man had a Southern drawl so thick that I don't know if this is a quote or not, but the agent said his Chicago ears could hardly understand him. (laughs) So the agent was looking all over his office for this assignment sheet and finally found it when he went through the trash can. So he pulled out this crumpled assignment sheet and gave it to the detective. On the sheet was the name and photo of Richard Speck. Once police came across Richard Speck's photograph, they showed it to Cora, along with over 200 mugshots of possible suspects. Cora picked out Speck's photo and said the killer most resembled him. Detective Wolzinski then asked the union agent to call Speck's phone number, and it turned out to belong to his sister, Martha Thornton, who lived with her husband, Jean, in Chicago. At the prodding of the detective, the union agent told Jean that Speck was needed for a job and had to report to the union hall in order to ship out. So Gene Thornton tells the agents that he'll try to locate Speck, his brother-in-law, and he calls the shipyard in. And this is like a janky little motel where he knew that Speck was staying. I think it's referred to as a flop house. Exactly. Through the course of researching this case, a lot of the newspapers refer to the places that Speck stayed as flop houses. So his brother-in-law calls the shipyard in. When he gets Speck on the phone, he tells him, hey, I just got a call from the Maritime Union and they said they found an assignment for you. You need to get down there as soon as you can. So Speck calls the union hall. Now, this is on the same day the murders were discovered. And he was told by the union agent that there was a job for him on a ship called Sinclair Great Lakes and that he would need to report as soon as possible. Speck told the union agent that he was about an hour north and would be there soon. But Speck knew the Sinclair had shipped out a few days prior. So shortly after hanging up, Speck goes to his room at the shipyard inn and begins packing his bags. At this point, he was sharing the room with a man nicknamed Red, and he tells Red, hey, I just got a job and I'm going to go ship out. Speck calls a taxi to come pick him up, and the two go downstairs to play pool at the bar and wait for the taxi. They're playing pool calf and three officers walk into the shipyard inn and ask the bartender if there had been any patrons that were tall and blonde with a southern accent. So Speck's listening to the officers talk to the bartender and he's remaining quiet. So the taxi cab gets there and he just casually walks past the officers and leaves, evading police for the first time. 
He leaves the shipyard in and makes his way down to Dearborn Street to the Raleigh Hotel, which, according to newspapers, was also a flop house. He then checked in under a false name. So the day after Speck checks into the Raleigh, the manager gets a call from one of the clerks who says, oh, by the way, manager, one of our guests brought a sex worker home with them. And a half hour later, the sex worker came down to the front desk and told me that he had a gun. So the manager calls the police and the police arrive at the Raleigh Hotel at 8.30 a.m. on Saturday, July 15th, and the manager takes them up to Speck's room. So Speck, who is hung over at this point, was awakened by two police officers standing over him, questioning him about a gun. Speck denied the gun was his and said it belonged to the woman he brought to his room the night before. Officers asked his name and he told them Richard Speck. In his wallet, they found his passport and his identification card for the Maritime Union. The officers questioned him for about 15 minutes. The gun was taken, and then the officers told the clerk that the man was harmless. No police report was written, and Speck flew under the radar once again. At this point, Kath, detectives had not publicly identified Speck as a suspect or put out any kind of APB on him. By July 16, 1966, two days after the murders, the public now had a sketch of the suspect, but no name was attached. Coroner Dr. Andrew J. Toman called these murders the crime of the century, and the South Chicago Community Hospital offered a $10,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the killer. That same day, Homicide Commander Frank Flanagan received a phone call from the department's fingerprint expert, Emil Geis. Geis reported that the fingerprints found at the townhouse were a match to Speck's fingerprints that had been provided by the FBI. Kath, it was reported when this information went out across the police radio that officers in their patrol cars began to cry with relief. I read that too. With the information about the fingerprints, the team of the six detectives who had fanned out across the city to look for Richard Speck went to the state's attorney's office for an arrest warrant and met with the state's attorney, Daniel Ward, and the assistant state's attorney, William Martin. Martin typed up the arrest warrant while Ward, who was concerned about the press jeopardizing the case, called Chicago Police Chief O.W. Wilson to tell him how to handle the case with the press. But it was too late. Chief Wilson was already giving a press conference and issued an all-points bulletin on spec, identifying him as the man who murdered the eight student nurses. Kath, one thing I thought was interesting is that just prior to these murders, there was a case in Ohio where a doctor named Sam Shepard was accused of murdering his wife and children. That's a really famous case. Exactly. Well, the United States Supreme Court had recently overturned his conviction because of the way the press was allowed to trample on his due process rights. So the state's attorney was very aware of this extremely well-publicized case that was just overturned, and they didn't want the same thing to happen here. In the meantime, the police chief, though, is out saying, hey, everybody, here's the picture of the guy who did it. This is the guy who did it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I'm now saying as the police chief, this man this is, is guilty. This is the guy. Yep. With his face on the front page of every paper, Richard Speck knew it was only a matter of time before he was caught. So what do you do? You go get drunk. Exactly. <laughs> so that night, he bought a bottle of wine and went to an acquaintance's room at the Star Hotel. He got drunk, smashed the bottle of wine, and attempted suicide by slicing his forearm. When he did this, Speck cried out, and someone found him lying on the bed bleeding out. 
An ambulance took him to Cook County Hospital and he was admitted under the name B, as in the initial B, Brian, because that was the name registered to the room that he was taken from. At the hospital, Dr. Leroy Smith noticed the patient looked similar to the sketch in the newspapers. Dr. Smith asked a nurse to find the newspaper from that day to see the sketch of this suspected killer. Then he wiped blood off Speck's forearm, and there it was, the Born to Raise Hell tattoo. Speck then called out for water, saying he was thirsty. Dr. Smith calf grabbed the back of his head and said, did you give water to the nurses? I saw that calf, but I'm not sure I believe that actually happened. That was reported in the paper. And when I read it, I was like, that's a little dramatic. Because back then, we knew this from the Suzanne Degnan case. It is incredible how much poetic license reporters took back then. Oh, my goodness. Exactly. And then I also read another article where it was actually a nurse who was the one who was like, hey, this looks like the sketch in the newspaper. I think this is the killer. And actually, it wasn't an article, Kath. You're talking about the archived FBI transmissions during that day. Oh, my gosh, you're right. Yeah. So these were teletype. It's like an old school text yeah, that, exactly. you're ty- that you're typing really fast and making a lot of mistakes on. <laughs> but there's no autocorrect. Right. For good or for bad. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and this was going from the FBI office in Chicago to a number of different FBI offices, but especially to the National Center in Washington, D.C. Right. And they were updating what was happening in Chicago. Every step of the way. Right. This was incredible nationwide news. It was all over the papers. Which just led to more poetic license. Oh, totally. But anyway, so in this teletype archive that we saw, the FBI teletype said it was a nurse who recognized him. So Dr. Smith, of course, called the police. Kath, why are so many dogs now suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, said she's seeing more issues with joints, odors and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food. What she discovered is actually the way many dog foods are made can create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many of the premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw a huge transformation in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. And Kath, as you know, we have a schnauzer named Ollie. And even though my husband insists he is not, he is overly flatulent. (laughs) (laughs) After I started giving him this food, I swear there was a reduction in his smell. I love that. And I'll come over to your house now. (laughs) Exactly. Well, and you know, we have a Vishla we call Orange, and she's a senior dog. And over the last couple of weeks, she has actually had more energy to be running around the backyard with the younger dog, the Doberman we call Brown. Or crazy. A little bit. <laughs> so if you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash killer D and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D dot com slash killer D. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line 
prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Three days after the brutal murders of her friends and classmates, Cora was brought to the hospital to identify the killer in person. So she dressed in her nurse's uniform and went on rounds with her fellow nurses. And when it was time to enter Speck's room, she and her colleagues did. Cora watched for about three minutes as her fellow nurses cared for Speck. After leaving his room, she went to a different room where Assistant State's Attorney William Martin and detectives were waiting. She said, it's really him then fell to the ground, sobbing hysterically. Speck was arrested on July 17, 1966, three days after the murders, while lying in a hospital bed under police guard. The fortitude Cora had to have to go into Speck's room to identify him three days after all of her friends were killed and she was almost killed. Right. But for the grace of God. I am sure she was terrified that he was going to recognize her. Right. But in one of the articles that I read, Cora was quoted as saying she kept her head down when she was in the room with the other nurses. So I don't know if she, I don't know. Maybe Honestly, I don't think he would have. I mean, if you think about the frenzy he had to have been in. But he wasn't. Mentally, he could have been. I mean, mentally, he could have been. But she mentally, said. he should have been. Yeah. But she was saying he was calm and polite. None of them thought that they were going to die that night. I know. They were terrified, but they didn't think that he was killing them. Which is why Cora had told news stations, even up till the last however many years, that that was the reason they didn't fight back against him. Right. There were different articles that said they had conversations about it. And actually, when he first knocked on her door, she and Merlita ran and locked themselves in a closet. Right. And then there was a knock on the closet door and one of the roommates said, come on out. He's not going to hurt you. And they left the closet. And it was something Cora told detectives was that he was very soft spoken. And and what came out later was that at the crime scene, there were different shirts like men's T-shirts that were littered about covered in blood. Because you're thinking to yourself, how could he go back and take out these nurses one by one covered in blood? He couldn't do that. Right. They would have freaked out and understood what was happening to their friends. Exactly. Once they realized there was a single killer, officers put together the pieces of the puzzle and they realized this man was changing shirts in between murders and just discarding these t-shirts. Which makes sense because Cora said in between him taking somebody out and coming back and getting somebody else, she heard the water running in the sink in the bathroom as if he was washing up. Exactly. 
So when Marianne and Suzanne came home and ran up into the bedroom and he said, you two come here, it turns out later we find out that he killed them immediately and he had to because by the point they arrived home, he had already killed Pamela. And so he needed to kill them. Because they probably saw the body. Exactly. And he couldn't let the six women upstairs know the fate that awaited them. After the arrest, state's attorney Daniel Ward said the tracking of Speck by detectives was the finest bit of police work he had ever seen. (laughs) (laughs) It was soon revealed that Richard Speck had an extensive criminal history. And by the way, Kath, when he was arrested, he was only 24 years old. He had 41 arrests on his record already. The first one took place when he was 13 years old. Richard Speck was born in Illinois and was the seventh of eight children born to Benjamin Franklin Speck. No relation. (laughs) (laughs) I'm guessing, but I'm pretty sure I'm right. Exactly. (laughs) I have a feeling. And Mary Margaret Carbaugh Speck. His father died suddenly when Speck was six years old and his stepfather was an alcoholic who abused him psychologically and physically. Speck began drinking at age 12, and his first arrest at 13 was for trespassing. He dropped out of high school on his 16th birthday, and dozens of arrests followed, which eventually led to a three-year prison sentence at the Texas State Penitentiary in Huntsville for check fraud and theft. After that, he was sent back to prison for attacking a woman with a carving knife. Richard Speck had married Shirley Malone in 1962. He was 21, and she was 15. The two separated because Speck was an abusive alcoholic, and Shirley filed for divorce in January of 1966, six months before the murders. Kath, I read that there was speculation that Gloria Davy, who was the only woman Speck raped, actually looked like Speck's ex-wife Shirley. And so detectives thought that perhaps he raped her out of rage. After a warrant was issued in Texas in March of 1966 for stealing a vehicle and robbing a grocery store, Speck fled to Chicago. While in Illinois, he was questioned for the rape and robbery of a 65-year-old woman and the death of a 32-year-old waitress who died from a blow to her abdomen that ruptured her liver. Which reminds us of Patricia Matusik, who was allegedly kicked in the stomach. After that, Speck stayed with his sister Martha and her family. Two days before the murders, Martha's husband, Gene Thornton, dropped Speck off at the National Maritime Union hiring hall for a job. Katha, I actually read that Gene was done. Like, get out. You've overstayed your welcome. Hit it. He was probably a punk ass kid, too. Of course. Like, who wants their sister's convicted felon brother hanging out around the kids? Prosecuting Speck began with one very important goal keeping Cora safe and away from the press. Pre-trial publicity on the case was huge, as we said earlier, and prosecutor William Martin did not want Cora to be harassed by the press or the public. He flew Cora's mother and her cousin from the Philippines to Chicago and had them hidden in an undisclosed location under a pseudonym with 24-hour police protection. Cora, of course, Kath, as you can imagine, was being offered money, for commenting, quotes, book deals, interviews, that kind of stuff. But she remained steadfast in keeping out of the press and remaining silent. Good for her, because you would not hear that nowadays. Oh, I totally agree. The prosecution was led by William Martin, who we said earlier was the assistant state's attorney. 
Heading the defense team was public defender Gerald Getty, who had defended over 400 criminal cases with a record of zero death sentences. Kath, I read about this guy. He had a phenomenal reputation. Both of these lawyers were absolutely top-notch. Judge Herbert C. Passion presided over the case. Speck's defense team asked Judge Passion to appoint an expert to analyze if their client was competent to stand trial. The court appointed a panel of experts consisting of neurologists and psychiatrists to determine the competency of Speck. At the hearing, all seven physicians testified, and all of them believe that Speck understood the nature of the charges against him and was able to cooperate with his defense counsel, so he was deemed competent to stand trial. Now, as an interesting side note, they weren't saying here that he was insane. They did not use that defense, because to use the defense of insanity, you have to admit that you've committed a crime. They didn't do that. After it was determined that Speck was competent to stand trial, the defense made a motion to have the trial moved from Cook County due to the inflammatory press reports. As you can imagine, pretrial publicity in the case was frenzied, and Judge Passion, along with the lawyers, was concerned with any hindrance of Speck being properly tried. And again, Kath, they were concerned because the Shepard case, the conviction there, had just been overturned. So everybody was very sensitive about that. And as you said, the prosecution was particularly concerned with the impact of the press conference that was held by Chicago Police Chief Wilson when he identified Speck as the killer prior to his capture (laughs) and told reporters, as far as I'm concerned, there is no question that he's the murderer. (laughs) Subtle, he's not. (laughs) Nothing like due process. Exactly. So the morning after that press conference, every Chicago paper, unaware that Speck was already in police custody at the hospital, had headlines with Speck's name and photo. The Chicago Tribune even printed the headline, Richard Franklin Speck, the ex-convict being hunted for Chicago's mass murder, has been on the run from police in two states for four and one half months. Again, subtlety is not their thing. Exactly. And Kath, I actually read that when the defense made this motion for change of venue, the lead attorney brought in a box of paper clippings. So he literally cut out newspaper clippings, brought them to the judge, dumped them on counsel table and basically was like, this is what the newspapers have done so far. And it must have worked because the motion was granted. Exactly. According to the Illinois Bar Journal, this was the very first trial in Illinois to be moved due to pretrial press. Uh The trial was moved to Peoria, which was about 150 miles southeast of Chicago. Uh And even though it went out of Cook County, Judge Passion stayed as the trial judge. Exactly. He was actually ordered to stay as the trial judge. Jury selection took about six weeks. Approximately 600 jurors were questioned, and on March 30, 1967, 12 jurors and two alternates were selected. Another side note, because they wanted the trial process to be sacrosanct. One of the things in the Shepard case was there was a whole lot of shenanigans that went on with press in the courtroom and publicizing jurors' names and things like that. So Judge Passion basically said, we are not going to create a mess of this. And so part of the voir dire, because the case was so sensitive, was interviewing individual jurors one at a time, which was part of the reason it took six weeks. The trial began on Monday, April 3rd, 1967. 
The prosecution's opening statements lasted 75 minutes, where Prosecutor Martin explained in detail how Speck systematically murdered eight student nurses one by one. The prosecution brought witnesses to the stand who saw Speck looking at the townhouse in the days leading up to the murder, as well as witnesses who testified about his behavior in the days following the crime. This included fellow drinkers, bartenders, a cab driver, the sex worker, and the flophouse clerks. Witnesses also identified his unique tattoo. The crown jewel of the physical evidence were the three fingerprints found at the crime scene. Two fingerprints were found near the knob of one of the bedroom doors, and one print was found near the bottom of the door. Prosecution experts testified they compared the three crime scene fingerprints and their photographs with fingerprints taken from Richard Speck. Because of multiple points of identity, the prints were a match. So, Kath, one of the things that the prosecution did that I think was probably hard on the jury is that they called close relatives of the victims to the stand to identify their loved ones' bodies from police photos of the crime scene. I read that and I could not believe my eyes. How can you even do Ask that? Them to do that. That's I know. I know. I know. I know at some point, Kath, the defense attorney, and again, a very skilled, knowledgeable defense attorney, was objecting to the photographs, which were so graphic and so brutal, and there were so many of them. And he was saying, look, the prosecution doesn't have to show all this stuff. It's too prejudicial, blah, blah, blah. And I think the defense stipulated to the fact that these women had been killed. Exactly. And that was one of their points. Like, hey, we agree that these are the women. We agree that they've been murdered. There's no need to prance these photos around. And the judge said, no, no. It's okay. It's impactful. Oh, yeah, exactly. It's just too bad that he put the relatives through that. Exactly. Even with all the physical and circumstantial evidence and the witnesses who testified about Speck's attempted evasion, the most anticipated testimony was from Cora, the eyewitness. The entire trial essentially revolved around her. Cora took the stand on the third day of trial and gave an incredibly detailed timeline of the horrifying events of July 13th and 14th, 1966. She remarked how Speck, before taking Patricia Matuzic out of the bedroom, asked Patricia, are you the girl in the yellow dress before leading her to her death? The prosecution brought this out to show that he had been spying on the girls and watching the townhouse. When Cora was asked if she could identify the man who she saw that night, she quietly and calmly rose from her seat, left the witness stand, and walked over to the defense table where Speck was sitting, just a few feet away from the man who murdered her roommates in cold blood. She pointed to his face and said, "This is the man." Clank, clank. For sure. I don't know that I could have done that. You could have. But you know what I mean? Like even sitting in a courtroom and facing somebody who did all these things and you want to be angry and indignant and all of those things. But that had to have been terrifying. Mm -hmm. During her testimony, the prosecution used a scale model of the townhouse. Wooden blocks shaped roughly in the form of a seated figure were used to designate the eight women while they were alive and rectangular blocks were used to designate the places where the bodies were found. You know, Kath, I read that the defense objected because they said the figures resembled women who were kneeling in prayer and that the rectangular blocks resembled coffins. Mm -hmm. And so they claimed that these exhibits were only used to inflame and prejudice the jury. Exactly. You know, one of the things that judge pointed out in response to this 
He basically said, Cora has a really thick Tagalog accent. So these blocks are going to help the jurors. And it's easy for them to follow the chronology if we use these things. So he basically overruled the objection. Knowing the impact Cora's testimony had on the jurors, the defense attempted to impeach her identification of Speck. They attempted to characterize her as doubtful, vague, and uncertain. They brought out the fact that Cora had viewed a book containing mugshots and pointed out a mugshot she said was similar to the killer. When she saw a loose picture of Speck, she did not say this was a photo of the killer, but rather someone who looked similar to the killer. Kath, what I think they did was they gave her a book of mugshots, but then they also handed her the picture that they got from the union hall. And they hand her this thing and she wasn't like, oh my God, that's the guy. It was also brought out that she gave a description of the suspect to a police sketch artist. But in her cross-examination, she admitted that she could not recall telling the sketch artist about the man's lips, nose, eyes, eyebrows, and ears. The defense implied that Cora was traumatized and had been manipulated into believing the killer was Richard Speck. The defense also presented the theory that Richard Speck was innocent and simply a victim of overzealous reporters and prejudgment by the police. Two defense witnesses were called who testified they saw Speck at a local watering hole, Kay's Lounge, about a mile east of the townhouse. The two eyewitnesses were a husband and wife who worked at the bar. They testified that Speck was drinking at the bar at 11 p.m. on July 13th, and this was the exact time that Cora said the killer knocked on her bedroom door. The husband and wife did not know Speck personally, but knew his face from the newspapers. They told the jury Speck was at their bar twice that night, the second time being around 12.30 a.m. The prosecutor said the two witnesses testified in good faith, but were mistaken. He then reminded the jury of all of the physical evidence they had presented. Kath, one of the witnesses that the defense was expected to call was a guy named Dr. Marvin Zaporin, and he was a psychiatrist for the Cook County Jail. He was called chief psychiatrist, but he actually worked part-time for the Cook County Jail. Anyway, he met with Speck over a hundred times and he believed that Speck was not responsible for his actions on the night of the crime because of a mental defect. He said that Speck had brain damage, had uh, serious drug and alcohol abuse, and because of all the physical and psychological damages, he didn't know what he was doing, basically. So he tells this to the defense attorneys and so everyone's expecting this guy to testify However, the defense attorneys and the prosecutor find out that Dr. Zaporin was going to write a biography on Speck with a news magazine reporter. And so they couldn't call him to the stand due to credibility issues. He would have been too easily impeached. And here's the funny thing. There was a um, Chicago Tribune article after the verdict came in where the Cook County Sheriff fired Dr. Zaporin. And (laughs) there was a quote in the newspaper that said, I don't need a reason to fire a temporary employee, but you may quote me as saying he has too big a mouth. I love that. I know, exactly. On April 15th, 1967, after 49 minutes of jury deliberation, Richard Speck was found guilty of murdering the six student nurses and the two transfer nurses from the Philippines. Seven weeks later, on June 5, 1967, Judge Herbert Passion sentenced Richard Speck to death by electrocution. The execution was actually never carried out. 
His conviction was affirmed by the Illinois Supreme Court on November 22, 1968, but in June 1971, the United States Supreme Court reversed the death penalty, citing the systematic exclusion of potential jurors who had expressed reservations against the imposition of the death penalty. Kath, what happened was Illinois had a statute that allowed the prosecution or actually any attorney to ding jurors who had a moral objection to the death penalty. The Supreme Court said, you can't do that. Just because somebody has a moral objection doesn't mean they won't apply the law. The U.S. Supreme Court affirmed the guilty conviction, but made the judge retry the penalty phase. So the judge retries the penalty phase and again imposes the death penalty. However, A year later, in 1972, the United States Supreme Court held that 40 states had statutes on the books regarding the death penalty that were unconstitutional because it gave the jurors too much latitude in assessing death, which allowed for arbitrary decisions on the imposition of the death penalty. Illinois was one of those states. So even though Speck's death sentence had been reinstated, the U.S. Supreme Court said nope. And there were about 600 people who were sentenced to death nationwide whose sentences were now reduced. So in response to that U.S. Supreme Court ruling that voided the death penalties in these states, on November 21st, 1972, Illinois Judge Richard Fitzgerald resentenced Richard Speck to eight consecutive sentences of 50 to 150 years in prison. Now, Kath, here's what's interesting. Eight consecutive sentences, minimum term 50 years each correct? Mm-hmm. We're looking at 400 years minimum. Right. In September of 1976, four years after the sentence, Speck had his first parole hearing. It was denied almost immediately. And then he was also denied parole in six subsequent hearings. Richard Speck died in prison on December 5th, 1991 of a heart attack one day before his 50th birthday. No one claimed his body and his remains were cremated. On the 25th anniversary of the murders, prosecutor William Martin spoke to the Associated Press and said, This case defined an era. Before July 14, 1966, who would have thought that one man, ostensibly an intruder who only wanted money to go to New Orleans and smiled and said repeatedly he wasn't going to hurt anybody, was capable of stabbing and strangling one by one? Over four and a half hours, these eight young women, it ended the sense of security, even naivete, of the American public about the presence of evil and what evil was capable of. Fifteen years after Prosecutor Martin's remarks, the Chicago Tribune memorialized the young women on the 40th anniversary of their deaths. Nina Schmale was a good student, quiet, but with a sense of humor. Nina was instantly welcomed at the nursing school because she had what no other girl had. She had a car, and it was a 1957 Chevrolet Bel Air convertible in pale yellow colonial cream, which frankly sounds stunning. Absolutely. Nina wanted to be a psychiatric nurse and was engaged to her boyfriend of seven years. Her brother John kept her memory alive by establishing the Nina Jo Schmale Scholarship Fund at Wheaton College. Patricia Matusik was described by her friends as funny, assertive, sweet, and full of life. Patricia was a champion swimmer and was planning her wedding. 
Her family owned Matusik's Tavern on Michigan Avenue and were well known in the community. Detective Walenda, who was the first detective on scene, frequented the tavern and had watched Patricia grow up. Pamela Wilkening, known as Willie by her friends, was quieter than most of her roommates. Pam had been reserved, studious, and decisive since she was a little girl. She had one sibling, her brother Jack, who remarked on her diligence and steady temperament, saying she would have been a good military nurse. Marianne Jordan was the fourth of six children. She was athletic and loved playing pranks and listening to rock and roll. Marianne entered nursing school to follow in her grandmother, Grace Jordan's footsteps, who was a high-ranking surgical nurse at the University of Michigan. Suzanne Ferris was a devout Catholic who attended Mass every morning. She was working towards a career in pediatric nursing and planning her wedding. She and Marianne were close friends, and Suzanne was engaged to Marianne's brother, Phil Jordan. So Phil, how sad, lost a sister and a fiancé. Valentina Passione, called Tina by her family, moved to the United States on May 5, 1966, four months before the murders happened, along with 15 other nurses as part of a State Department-sponsored program to help with the nursing shortage in the United States. She was among the top 10 nursing students in her graduating class at Manila Central University in the Philippines. She sent most of the money she earned in the United States back to her family. Merlita Gargulo was considered shy, hardworking, efficient, and blessed with a beautiful singing voice. Like the other exchange nurses, she sent as much money home as she could, and as often as she could, she sent letters to her friends and family back home. Shortly before she died, Merlita wrote a letter to her friend about a trip to Wisconsin. Well, she wrote, it was a fine, dizzying, exciting, and wonderful weekend, but I still believe there is no place like home. Gloria Davy was described as the class golden girl and was recently celebrating her engagement. She was the second of six children, born in the same hospital where she was studying to be a nurse. She started as an English major and loved writing poetry before she switched to nursing. Her sister, Lori Davy, accepted Gloria's nursing school diploma that was posthumously conferred. And this episode goes out to my Aunt Margaret in Chicago, who was a nurse back in the day and suggested that I do this story. Aunt Margaret and Uncle Don, thank you so much for being patient (laughs) with my sisters and I every time we came to visit. (laughs) And thank you for letting us stay in your basement, which was always awesome. And sitting in your kitchen with the bay window, eating the best donuts I've ever had in my life. And that says a lot because Kathy tests those all the time. I love donuts. (laughs) (laughs) And sees candy. If you guys want to send it, she'll take it. (laughs) Exactly. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving with your family and friends. And didn't fall asleep on the way home with all that L-tryptophan in you. And didn't spend too much on Black Friday. (laughs) That's exactly right. (laughs) We appreciate your support. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing with all of your friends and family about us. If you haven't left a review, please do. And if you aren't following us yet, we're at Killer Destinations Podcast. On all the socials. Jesus Christ. I screw that up every time. Hold on. On Instagram and Facebook. (laughs) (laughs) 
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park 